you're listening to The Cat Who Did a Podcast with me, Susan Romsdorf-Terry, and... Luke Romsdorf-Terry, where we read a book from the Cat Who Mystery series and discuss it. On today's episode, we are talking about the 19th book in the series, The Cat Who Tailed a Thief. 19. There's only 10 more. 10 more books to go. Oh that's, my God. wow, that's, that's impressive we burned through that many. Yeah. Now this is, I say recent, but it's still 20 years ago over... <laughs> But this one was published in 1997, 98, again with the paperback and hardback, I'm guessing. Yes, but one thing that's important to note, with this book, we have officially, I mean, technically a couple of books ago, with this and the last book, we have covered 40 years of writing. Jeez. Because remember, we started in the 1960s. We did. And, and that's... we are now in 1998. And we still have another 10 years to go. Well, it's that meme that comes up that I've seen where people say 40 years ago. Oh, 1960. No. 1980. <laughs> and then it's the Saving Private Ryan gif of him becoming the old man. And anyway, maybe that's just me. All right. So <laughs> shall we uh, dive in on the Well, actually, no. There's a note you have here that's interesting about the book covers. Yes. Um, again, I'm still working from what are, what I, what are pretty much uh, my original copies of the book. Um, and I noticed with this particular book that they're starting to change the covers after so slightly. Um, after 18 books with the white spine and colored titles, the books are now coloring the spine to match the covers. And all of a sudden, the cover art is less photo clip art surrounded by paw prints. And it's a very strange illustration of a bottle with a poison symbol. I'll post a picture on the blog so I can kind of show you how weird this looks, in, especially in comparison to the previous book. Um, and then... What I noticed as I got started on the next book in the series um, was they kind of pulled back from that and went to something about halfway in between, um, which I believe is how they're going to finish the series. So oddball things to notice, but after 19 books, you start to notice weird things. <laughs> well, and you've had these in your collection for a while, too, so... Yes, but never I've really... never looked at them right, as closely. Right, I you've never taken a close look at them until, oh, you're spending a lot of time with them, and suddenly, huh, this looks interesting. It's different. And really, I've never... I don't think I have ever really read more than four or five at a clip. Hmm. Um, and that's And that's pushing it. There are usually... There are a couple of sets where I like to read two or three books together mm -hmm. um, and then go read them in clumps all the way. But this is the first time I've read them all the way through. Mm. So Wow. Yeah. Oh, and you've done 19 in a clip now. Here so. we go. <laughs> Speaking of which, so let's dive 19. in. Here we go. Okay. So this is The Cat Who Tailed the Thief. And uh, as the title may indicate, petty theft is suddenly becoming a problem in Moose County. <laughs> but worse, a mild winter is predicted. Oh, no. Um, Quill has Brody over to the barn at this point talking about, um, you know, the, what the petty thievery could mean for Moose County. And Brody laments the death of his great grandmother who could, uh, and I quote, tail a thief with a piece of string and a witch's chant, well, which that, I'm sure- We hit the t title of the book already in the uh, first exactly. sentence of the pair of the summary. Yeah. We, uh, I mean, granted, I'm not doing uh, Brody's Scottish accent uh, any, any justice whatsoever. <laughs> in um, the- uh, in the audiobook, I'm sure the guy is it oh, nice yes. and thick and rolling. Oh, it is. Oh, it wonderful. is indeed. Um, and with this conversation, Quill finally admits that he has bought a condo in Indian Village for his winter living. Because, shock of shocks, the barn is still too hard to heat. Um, <laughs> next thing we know, it is Christmas in Pickaxe. Oh. Um, we've got the standard eight-foot snowdrifts everywhere, and Quill's finishing his Christmas shopping and stops by the bank to cash a check. Um, sign of the times there. Um, <laughs> while he's there, he runs into Willard Carmichael, who was briefly introduced in the last book, who's a newbie to, uh, who's a newbie to pickaxe with his 
rather flashy wife. Ah, yes, Um, yes. And so the invite to dinner is a little awkward because Quill has been very much avoiding the Carmichaels because, well, Danielle is overly flirty um, and really (laughs) not settling into Moose County very well. Um, There are really only so many complaints about the lack of malls one can hear over dinner. (laughs) But it's explained that Danielle's cousin is visiting, and so she has taken him to Otto's Tasty Eats for dinner. How this is still in business, I will never know. Um, so Will is on his own for dinner, and he mentions craving Mediterranean. So they agree to meet mm. at Onusha's Mediterranean oh, Cafe. It's open. It is indeed. Wonderful. And this, by the way, replaces, I assume, because it's never really clarified, but I assume that this replaces the quote-unquote expand your horizons pasty parlor. Because, <laughs> again, nice kids, but they don't know pasty from a pizza, to quote Gary Pratt. Well, um, there's no turnips. It's just... All sorts of shenanigans going on. Just because you shove something in dough does not make it a pasty. <laughs> There's our next t-shirt. Exactly. Uh, but first, home to feed the cats. Um, and then at dinner, we learn Daniel's cousin apparently is a restoration expert who hopes to get the entirety of Pleasant Street, which we were introduced to in the last book, because that's where Polly's sister-in-law Lynette lives. Hmm. The uh, piles and piles of gingerbread trim. Um, so her cousin is, uh, hoping to get the entirety of the street on the National Register of Historic Places. Mm. Willard is, uh, arranging for the bank to offer good loan rates to help, and it seems like a great plan is in the works. Um, we also learned something about, you know, it's been mentioned that, uh, the bird watchers don't play bridge and the bridge players don't watch birds in Indian Village. Um, so we learn a little bit about the bridge playing culture in Indian Village here, um, and particularly that Polly's sister-in-law, Lynette, is a champion player and mm. fundraiser. Um, currently, the Bridge Club has nearly 200, sorry, 200, only $2,000 in donated winnings, um, which is waiting to go to a good cause. Um, we also learn a lot about Willard and Danielle's marriage, mm. which is, uh, red flags are flying all <laughs> over this field. Um, Willard's first wife died. Um, he's got grown kids who live out west. For him, it was love at first sight with Danielle when he met her in a Baltimore show club, not the best voice, but a dynamite looker, as he says. Um, now he wants more kids. She's not sure. So he's letting her spend his money while she decides. Yeah, seriously, nothing remotely worry about worrying about that at all. No. Why are we even having a book? No, read at this, we should just wrap it up here. Let's move on to book 20. <laughs> <laughs> but we're not going to. But we're not going to. Uh, now, after seven winters in Moose County, I, I had to do some, some calculating and realizing that Quill has been here, according to this book, seven years. At this point, um, he has Seven finally years. he has finally bought a car that can handle snow, which <laughs> thank God because the drive to and from Indian Village is considerably longer than his previous commute from the barn, um, but it does have better fl- plowing. I'll give him a little bit of credit there. <laughs> um, in the uh, in in the interest of plot and convenience, Polly has also moved to the village, as we guess she might from the previous book. Um, Yeah, they alluded to that, I remember. Yeah, they were trying to get her to move out there. Uh, Sarah Plensdorf and Susan Exbridge were both trying to talk her into it. Uh, Whereas Lynette was like, no, just move in with me on Pleasant Street. No, no, (laughs) please no. Um, Anyway, so the way that the village condos are set up is they are in units of four. Um, So so in this particular building, we have Quill and Polly. uh, And then at the far end, we have the retired Cavendish sisters. Um, (laughs) And then next... Quill, on the other side, is the one person in Moose County he thinks he cannot stand. Weather be good, the weatherman oh, no. from WPKX. Oh, no. Yes. 
The Rikers, by the way, also have a condo for the winter, um, though they keep the beach house for the summers, but they're in another building. Um, so it's Christmas. Quill and Polly go have Christmas dinner with uh, with Arch and Mildred. Gifts are exchanged. Hilariously, Arch and Quill give each other the same loud baseball tie. Oh, shucks, guys. Um Quill also receives a gift from Bootsy, which he jokingly says must be a package bomb. Um, not a great joke after the last book, no, just say. No, not at all. Um, I'm going to say. Yeah. Turns out it's a sporin. A sporin. A sporin to go, to to go, go with, with his kilt. kilt. Yes. Um, this was, by the way, the sporin was made by Mildred, which was very kind, I thought. Oh, very nice. Um, when asked how Bootsy knew that Quill had bought a kilt, Polly replies, there are no secrets in pickaxe. <laughs> and this is true. Very much um, so. Bad news starts uh, starts the new year after Christmas, though, because the petty thief has stolen the Bridge Club donation. Oh, no. So they've gotten out to Indian Village after mostly just stealing little things from cars and and houses throughout the town. Well, $2,000 is not exactly is, petty. Is, no, this is this is getting serious. Mm-hmm. Uh, so after Christmas, uh, Quill is hunting for um, material for the Quill pen. And he gets a tip on uh, Gil McMurchie. Gil is in plumbing, uh, but is getting ready to retire. <laughs> Gil also has an interesting sideline in that he is a dowser, a.k.a. a water witch. The person with the forked stick that goes and finds water. Okay. Yeah, Gil is a skilled dowser. A d- interesting. In addition to being a good plumber. And it's so, a very specific kind of wood. You have to make that stick, if I remember it's right. It's less the, uh, according to Gil, it's not about be it being a specific kind of wood. It's that it's got to be fairly fresh and have sap in it, mm. which is why, you know, a dowser has nothing to do in the winter. Um, I just always remember there is a peanut special where Snoopy... Picks up a stick, it's just a random stick, and he starts to wander around until the stick literally is pointing down and grabbing hold of him, which is, having seen videos of it, it's not too far away from no, that. No, no, that's kind of how dousing works, apparently. It's fascinating to watch. Yeah. I didn't know that was what it called, though. Yes. Um, now, unfortunately, as far as the Quill Panda is concerned, we can't run, he, Quill can't run, the, uh, can't run the interview until spring so he can see an actual demonstration of dousing. Uh, well, of course. Uh, which makes sense. So he so he does some preemptive interviewing. He meets with Gil, sees his lovely house. He also Gil happens to live on Pleasant Street. He's neighbors with Lynette. Oh, wonderful. Um, and but now that um, his wife has passed on, he's considering fixing up the house, aided by Danielle's cousin, whose name is Carter Lee. Carter Lee. Carter Lee Jones or. James, Carter Lee James. Carter Lee me. James. Carter Lee James. He'll just be Carter Lee for the running of the book because <laughs> three names was too much. Well, hello, CL. <laughs> <laughs> what? Anyway, thank you for quoting one of my favorite movies. Ah, anyway, moving on. Which, which movie did I quote? Uh, you quoted, uh, apparently you didn't realize it, but it's uh, Down With Love. I... It's the boardroom scene. Oh, yes. Yes. Oh, yes. Uh, I just always think of you and McGregor. Oh, he's down. You know, it's the light about he's down with TB. Oh no, is it serious? No, Theodore Banner's the is the publisher who's publishing your little book. Anyway, <laughs> okay, that this, was a. This is our side podcast, uh, the cat who did down with love. Hmm. Well, it's right there. Anyway, so <laughs> charming movie. Go watch it. Guy yes. directed Ant Man. Anyway, really wonderful. Um, so Carter Lee and Danielle are in the house and they're looking at things and making notes about what needs to be updated and changed according to Carter Lee to. Um, to to uh, to make a pl- to be able to be eligible for the the historic register. Um, one other thing, Gil with the last name of McMurchie, is it a shocker that he's Scottish um, <laughs> and uh, is a member of the Scottish Lodge? Uh, so he loans Quill a knife called a tube 
to wear in his sock for Scottish knife. Hmm. And uh, he he talks about making plans to sell the rest of his antique daggers because they were gifts from his wife. So Quill offers to buy them. Um, but there's one small problem. There was one dagger that that Gil was planning to keep for himself, which had the lion rampant in a chased silver hilt. Mm-hmm. Um, but shortly after Quill's visit, the uh, the knife turns up missing. Ooh. So the petty thief has struck again. Damn. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Despite that, the residents of Indian Village gather to celebrate the new year, and we finally meet Weatherby Good in person. <laughs> he is a dapper gentleman in a double-breasted suit with a button that says, Hit me, I'm the weather guy. The guy is self-aware. Um, he also entertains the crowds with show tunes on the piano while Danielle sings ballads. All right. With mixed reactions. Mostly everyone's impressed with his playing. They're less impressed with her singing. The singing, yeah. Hmm. Yes. Um, everyone is asked for their resolutions, most of which are the usual fail as soon as you start kind of resolutions, but two are interesting. Polly vows to get a companion for Bootsy. <laughs> and Lynette, after her entire adult life single, claims that this is the year she gets married. That's In- quite a statement, my dear. Interesting. I think there, it, the way you said that there's going to be some weight to that later. Oh, yeah. Oh, my. Um over mostly male protests, Amanda Goodwinter is uh, is selected to usher in the new year, uh, <laughs> and the party breaks up. But unfortunately, yet another theft has occurred. Oh, no. Cardalee's lambskin car coat is missing. Ooh. In other news, we learn what Weatherby Good's real name is. Joe Bunker. <laughs> and Quillerin's <laughs> response to that is, well, I change it too. Joe Bunker. Joe Bunker. Oh, <laughs> We're going to learn a lot about Joe Bunker in this uh, in in this book, and he is quite frankly delightful. And I am so glad that he has been added as a character to the pickaxe group because oh, he's fun. So after the new year, Carter Lee and Willard head down below Carter for home apparently, and Willard for a banking conference. Hmm. Uh, Mildred the Land speaks, and Fran Brody spearhead uh, Willard's new idea, which and uh, they have the first meeting, which is a Nouvelle Cuisine Club. Ah. Um, so it's an opportunity to get together, eat some food that you would never otherwise eat, especially sure. in pickaxe, where even though things are getting better, you're still not going to get still a lot ways of, to go. You're, you're still not going to get a lot of very fancy food. Um, the first meeting is going swimmingly until the dessert course when Carol gets a call. Willard has been shot during a during a mugging down below. Oh no! And it's fatal. Oh no! Fran has to break the news to Danielle, who wails in heartbreak, and unsurprisingly, no one feels like eating dessert. <laughs> Once Danielle flies down below for the funeral, it's predicted she won't come back. Mm. Coco does no no death dance for this, but he does have a new habit of wrapping Yum Yum on the nose with his paw, and Quill is getting a little frustrated with his behavior. Huh. So what's going on in Coco's head? Interesting. Um, Very much is a question on everyone's mind. Yeah, the very next day after Danielle leaves, the police follow an anonymous tip and find most of the stolen goods in the manager's locker at Indian Village, leading them to arrest... Lenny Inchpot, Lois's son, who was the previous desk clerk Lenny? at the hotel. Yeah. yeah. So Lenny had gone and gotten a, and gotten a new job where he was managing the clubhouse at Indian Village, and just minding have, his own business. Have a locker full of stolen stuff. And suddenly he has a locker full of stolen stuff. But Quill and pretty much everyone with any sense thinks it's a setup. Right. For one thing, no cash was recovered, and for another, if Lenny were going to quote unquote skip town as the police claim he was doing. Why would he have gone to his aunt's house in Duluth, Minnesota? <laughs> That's not exactly where you go to skip town. No. Um, Quill's mustache is twitching, and he calls his new attorney to help take on Lenny's case. We meet Bart, who is, which is short for George Allen Barter, seen oh. on the letterhead as G. Allen Barter, so as not to be confused with local scoundrel George A. Breeze. 
Um, yeah, this is a weird pickaxe. Let's Some <laughs> two rivals living across the street just throwing tomatoes at each other. Something like, well, Jeez. you know, you've got you, you've got the young you've got the young up and coming lawyer, and then you've got a guy who lives who old war horse. Uh, no, who runs a junkyard and uh, is and and ran for mayor and got two votes. Still, in a previous book, old warhorse. Yeah, it's not somebody you want to be compared with. No, no, of course with. not. So Bart is short. Bart is smart. Bart is smart enough to know that he does not want to be compared with Breeze. The worst part uh, about those two votes for mayor is one of them wasn't himself. Exactly. <laughs> um, so Bart, by the way, is the youngest member of the of the Hasselrich, Bennett, and Barter team, um, <laughs> and is now Quill's K Fund representative as the senior partner. Hasselrich is getting well senior. Um, <laughs> It's a very polite way. Polite way. Uh, Osmond Hasselrich is getting up in it. Yeah, yes, he is senior partner. Emphasis on part- senior yes. partner. Uh, Bart gets Lenny's situation immediately, and we get an update. Uh, and and a, a fun update. Um, the K-Fund is now working to buy the new Pickaxe Hotel and the Limburger Mansion to be restored and managed by the fund, as obviously one is a hotel and the other as a, as a high-class bed and breakfast. Oh, wow. So go, K-Fund, go. <laughs> um... Quill recommends looking at Carter Lee to possibly do the restoration work, um, especially if he's successful with the Pleasant Street po- project, which Bart takes under advisement and says they'll do some investigation into his credentials and get back to you. Um, after a chat with Lenny, uh, Quill gets an absolutely brilliant idea and calls Don Exbridge to see about having Celia Robinson fill in as manager <laughs> while Lenny's awaiting trial or exoneration. He uh, Exbridge is thrilled. He just wants the job filled. And I'm excited for another Agent 0013 and a half mission. Yeah. <laughs> Always count on Cecilia for some good. Absolutely. <laughs> Amazingly, despite the uh, despite all evidence to the contrary, Danielle comes back with Carter Lee in tow. Uh, Fran Brody, who had accompanied her down below, um, in an act of desperation to get her to come back, offered her the lead in the next theater club production. And Danielle's back to start rehearsals, which would have been great if it was Damn Yankees, but... It's Hedda Gabler. Hedda Gabler? Hedda Gabler. That is a very big leap from Damn Yankees to Hedda Gabler. No, no, no. I'm. Everyone describes Danielle's voice as tinny, rusty gate. Um, so, her, so. her habit of wearing very short skirts and flirting with men, um, regardless of marital status, theirs or hers, um, <laughs> leads most people to compare her to uh, Lola in Damn Yankees. Okay, whatever Lola wants. Yes, so... The the uh, the shock of coming back and saying, "Oh, what's the show?" It's had a gabbler. Gabbler had a gabbler. Self involved woman. Oh God, so much drama. Oh, jeez. Um, Quill is honestly horrified at the suggestion, but Fran frankly considers it an investment in the design studio because, of course, Danielle has ordered custom everything for the uh, modern <laughs> Fitch house, and the studio is on the hook for thousands if she doesn't take delivery. Oof. But even Fran can't keep a straight face describing rehearsals with Danielle's voice uh, described as rusty gate. Well, especially um, having to lis- listen to a voice like that do very heavy drama. That's yep. just not going to... Danielle apparently doesn't like the uh, actor that they've got for Judge Brack. Uh, and Fran tries to bribe Quill into, pl- into playing Judge Brack. But Quill then retaliates by threatening to have the K-Fund buy out all the performances. Uh, so that they will have no audience whatsoever. Um, and, it's a very petty thing to do. Yes, but it's the only. But it only works if you have the money to do oh, it. Oh yeah. Um, so Fran drops the subject. Uh, Carter <laughs> Lee, meanwhile, has been back and flirting with Lynette Duncan. Hmm. They were bridge partners before he left, and he is now asking her to be the official cheerleader for his Pleasant Street project. <laughs> she is understandably very excited with his return. 
Uh, we get a side we, we get a side adventure where Quill attends Burns Night in his full kilt, uh, <laughs> and we learn about an interesting thing. There is an annual snowmelt contest sponsored by the something. Um, it involves a secret location to judge when the last snow has quote unquote officially melted, and. Quill is a, a, a very dashing figure in his kilt. Everyone, everyone's impressed. It goes out well. Not surprised at all. Uh, meanwhile, rehearsals are start, have started for Hedda Gabler and Carol Landspeak is directing. Um, <laughs> the one good thing that, that Carol can say about Danielle is that she's learned her lines quickly and well. <laughs> but she's being such a pill that the actor playing Judge Brack is dropping out. Oh, no. Carol once again tries to get Quill to take the part, and he <laughs> refuses, again, but slightly more politely to Carol than he did to Fran. Um, and the next day, Quill gets lands on the front page of the something in his full kilt, and we're talking a full 16-inch photo. Full color. <laughs> oh, my. Richest man in four, a richest man in five states. Uh, Don's kilt, and... We, we, as we impresses go through, everyone. Impresses everyone. As we go through the book, he's told by multiple people that they cut it out and got it framed. <laughs> so guy. just stroking his ego and making him feel very important, uh-huh. I'm sure. <laughs> uh-huh. Looking to escape more notice uh, after this lovely after this lovely surprise, Quill decides to hide out at Amanda's design studio to get the uh, the uh, the uh, the Dirks, the uh, the little daggers that he had bought mm-hmm. from Gil McMurchy. He wants them framed, so he takes them there uh, to have Fran take a look at them. And while she's and while he's there, Fran suggests another topic for the quill pen: the Kemple family's collection of rare dolls. Mm-hmm. The Kemples, by the way, are another Pleasant Street family, and they're considering jumping on the restoration bandwagon. Less less so less enthusiastically than others, because well, they just finished a redo of the house, <laughs> so they're not really looking for not keen on doing a whole doing other a whole new one. Um, they are, however, also leery of publication of publication and publicity for their collection because they've just had a small doll stolen and they remember what happened to the Chisholm Sisters teddy bear collection. Oh, yes. That- this is all the way back in the cat who wasn't there. Um, so they invite Quill for a visit instead uh, to have him come look at the dolls, but not write about them, which is a small price for Quill to pay to not have to write about the doll collection that apparently people have been bugging him to write about for years. He is thrilled. <laughs> um, easily worth his while. So we meet Ernie Kempel, who is a loud and friendly transplant from down below, as is his wife. We don't really meet the wife. Um, we meet in passing their daughter, Tracy, who works at the Old Stone Mill and Quill has had as a waitress several times. And while they are, well, Ernie is showing Quill around the extensive doll collection, he mentions that the stolen doll was found in Lenny's locker in Indian Village. But it turns out that Lenny used to date Tracy in high school. And despite being a prankster, Ernie never felt like he was the thief. Hmm. So this is one more point in Quill's favor of Lenny obviously didn't do it. Obviously did not do it. No, um, especially not since, looking like it. Especially since Lenny has been coming to see Tracy after Anna Maria's death. Uh, remember, that was his girlfriend who was killed uh, when the hotel exploded. And that was in the last book, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. So apparently Tracy has decided that while Lenny is nice, she's preferred she prefers bigger fish and has been pursuing Carter Lee. CL, really? Indeed. We don't really get a feeling of how old he is versus how old Tracy is, but (laughs) I generally get the impression that Tracy is quite a bit younger um, than Mm. Carter Lee. Uh, but she sees him as, uh, you know, kind of the uh, the wealthy older man who's going to take her away from all of this. Um, and that has Ernie's dad sense tingling and not in a good way. <laughs> Tracy already has a son from her first failed marriage, and he does not want to see her disappointed again. 
I understand. Mm-hmm. No. Uh, before leaving, Quill has another brilliant notion and suggests that Ernie take on the now vacant role of Judge Brack for the theater club. <laughs> so, having done his good deed for the day, he heads home for ice cream and to read to the cats. I think that's a very good way to end it. I think so, too. <laughs> the next day, Quill does a no- yet another good deed. He delivers a dog to Mitch Ogilvy and Christy Fugtree from Gil McMurchie. Oh. Apparently, uh, Gil's wife had a lovely little schnauzer named Cody, and... The senior living facility doesn't take pets, which is stupid. That's um, very odd. Yeah. I, I mean, I can understand why, but uh, anyway. But still. Um, so we, so he needed to find a, a good home for this sweet little dog. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, uh, and, and the uh, Mitch and Christy mentioned that they take her. So Quill goes out to, uh, Quill goes out to visit Mitch um, because, of course, Christy is once again gone. Um and deliver the dog, and while he's visiting and sampling more goat cheese, the lucky man, <laughs> he chats with Mitch about the process of getting the Fugtree farmhouse listed on the historic register. Mitch tells him about the huge amounts of red tape that they had to go through even with the K-Fund assistance, and he mentions a dot matrix printout that is six yards long, almost 20 feet long, hmm. that had to be read and adhered to. Jeez. So this is starting to make Quill wonder... If Carter Lee's plans for Pleasant Street is really as doable as he's making it sound. With that many adherences, or uh, that's it's, a lot. It's a lot to do. And um, if you Dumb. know anything about getting a house on the, on the historic register, it is a massive, massive undertaking. I'm Not more something just you do easily. The, the six yards of dot matrix printing. As a dot, another sign of the times, <laughs> a dot matrix printer, that is a lot. It is indeed. Um so he doesn't have much time to wonder about this because his list of good deeds continues. He is uh, picking up the cake and champagne because it's Lynette Duncan's birthday. Um, that evening, he is surprised, however, by what he picks up from the Scottish bakery. Um, he asked for a Scottish-themed cake, which he expected <laughs> to be a subtle thistle design. Instead, when he opens the box, it is an all-over plaid. I would just like to say that having done some practice frosting myself, getting a plaid design on a cake is really, really hard. That so most definitely took some effort. It really, and really patience. Did. Yes. And the woman who hands it to him is so proud of the design. She is so <laughs> proud. And he's like, yeah, it's, I've never seen anything like it. Hopefully, I would say hopefully he's impressed at least. At least with the work. Um, but he does, but he's worried that the uh, the cake's design is going to um, cause Polly to have another heart attack. Oh, no. So when he puts it in her fridge, uh, he puts a warning on the uh uh, on the front door, Do not open. which no, it says "wild cake inside." <laughs> um, so Polly is hosting the party, um, which is a bit of a letdown. I mean, her stereo isn't working. Uh, nobody's mm. really talking to each other. Um, and then after dinner, of all things, after this bizarre evening, Carter Lee drops to one knee. What? And pulls out a ring uh-huh. and proposes to Lynette. Not who I expected you to say. Nope, not remotely. Oh, oh, oh. Um, Polly and Quill are completely shocked, and Danielle is grumpy. Don't know why. Hmm. Um, this very sudden romance will culminate in a small wedding in the clubhouse in Indian Village, followed by a Mardi Gras honeymoon in New Orleans. And Quill wonders why there's no church wedding. And then we get a little bit of history. 
Because it turns out that Lynette was left at the altar 20 years ago. Oh. Um, and this was the full-on church wedding. I mean, six bridesmaids in matching dresses. Ooh, uh, everybody at the Everybody at the church. And she got left at the altar. <laughs> oh, the quartet the groom, playing canon in D, I bet. The Everything. groom skipped town, joined the Navy, and was never seen again. Oh, God. So, not inclined to a church wedding this time around. Absolutely understand no. that. No, Mardi Gras sounds great. Yeah. Yeah. Quill then ungenerously <laughs> wonders if she might leave Carterly at the altar as revenge. Oh, um, no. Because that's the kind of person Quill is. Um, now, in the morning, after this very, very eventful evening... Quill gets a call from Celia Robinson, who is, of course, loving her new part-time job at in Indian Village. <laughs> and she reports that most tenants don't think that Lenny stole anything, with the exception of local troublemaker, as previously mentioned, George Breeze, mm. who has been trying to trash Lenny's reputation oh. in the clubhouse. George. Breeze is a uh, businessman of unspecified means. He runs a local junkyard. Um... And uh, generally is considered the Trump of the North Woods, accused of everything but indicted of nothing. <laughs> I incorrectly wrote down that he's the former mayor accused of molesting female students. It should be pointed out um, that particular mayor is still in office. Ooh. Fun, fun uh, things for later. Anyway, geez. but Breeze himself is not is, is has never been uh, convicted of that. Uh, like I said, Trump of the North Woods, accused Jeez. of everything, indicted of nothing. Um with that kind of information, Quill stops by the Spoonery down on Stable Road. <laughs> remember the Spoonery? That's I where, do remember that's the spoonery. where Lori it's and, and the kids uh, it's and, still and the a kids very have fun name. And we learn that Coco has once again been threatening Yum Yum, but Quill still isn't sure why. The, the um, wrapping on the nose. The wrapping on the nose. The uh, the following around. Huh. Um, from there, he goes to the design studio to pick up his frame Dirks and gossips with Fran about Lynette's wedding. Is he marrying her for money? Probably. Um, <laughs> and Hedda Gabler rehearsals. Ernie Kemple has, of course, been cast as Judge Brack. Of and course. Fran describes his booming voice against Danielle's tinny one as a duet for tuba and piccolo. <laughs> they keep trying to get him to come to see rehearsals so that he can have a good laugh. <laughs> this, this does not... Um, this, along with Danielle apparently calling him JB instead of Judge Brack, is turning this into a disastrous comedy. Um, and Quill predicts it will not make it to opening night. Fran also comments, uh, per her dad, that Willard's murder may never be solved unless it's conf confessed in connection with other murders. Hmm. This is actually a bit prophetic, so we'll find out about that later. Interesting, okay. Meanwhile, Celia is, uh, in her guise as Agent 0013 and a half, <laughs> is trailing George Breeze, who has now been codenamed Red Cap. And she's reporting her findings to Quill in the produce section of Toodles Market. Um... <laughs> Quill has his own gossip to share, though, when Lynette and Carter Lee stop by to ask Quill to be the best man for their wedding. Quill, really? Quill, of all people. That's um, an interesting... Uh, really, what hmm. it comes down to is they know that Quill has a kilt. I mean, that describes, <laughs> like, 50 other men in the Northwoods, but... Eh, at least they I, know him. Well, and, very, I, and know of him. And, have you and, seen that picture, though? Exactly. <laughs> and it's... Lynette is very, very proud of her Scottish heritage. Hmm. Um, we... It's been hinted at in previous books, but really, this book, she's going full, full-on Scottish Leaning lady. Leaning really hard into Scottish. Yes. So when she has the option um, to get married, she's uh, she's having a full-on Scottish wedding. <laughs> um, the uh, Carter Lee's big con contribution to the conversation is that his mother is French and that and she's living in Paris right now. Um, and he and Lynn are, gonna, are planning to visit her in May. 
Um, it's later noted that their honeymoon in New Orleans is actually actually Carter Lee using Danielle's hotel reservation before Willard was killed. What? This is awkward. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. Um, you know, I, I can't speak too much. I don't have any actual cousins. I have a couple of second cousins, but sure. not a lot. Both my parents were only children. Um, but I can't imagine taking one of their hotel reservations. Even if it was to to get it off their hands after somebody died. It's just, it's something is very hinky here. No, that, yeah, regardless of what the conditions were to, no. Yeah, it's very hinky. Regardless, it's very, very, yeah, very, very hinky. And the hinkiness continues because Quill and Polly have a fancy dinner down at the Palomino Paddock that ends very badly. No, oh, no. Primarily because Quill repeatedly insults Polly's choice of name for Bootsy. Oh, no. Um, by warning her to pick a better name for the new kitten she's getting. Quill. Quill. Come on. Um, it's not your place, buddy. Not her place at all. Not your place at all. Um, so after that, unsurprisingly, Polly demands to be left at the door with no good night, and Quill would be upset, except that he doesn't have time. He's grabbed by one of the Cavendish sisters to come help rescue their cat, who has fallen behind their washer. And in this dramatic scene, the cat, Propinquity, Pinky for short, is saved. Propinquity? Yes. Ruth and Jenny Cavendish are hugely grateful for Quill's rescue, and Pinky is relieved to join her companion equanimity. Quinky, for short. Quinky. So we have Pinky and Quinky. I love these names. I believe I mentioned that I have been waiting for this moment since the cat who came to breakfast with Bernie's, um, because he mentioned what a great word equanimity is. And that's the name of one, these of, are the one of the cats. cats. <laughs> yep. Pinky and Quinky. And these names give Quill an idea. Um, uh huh. This is an idea that will be interesting for the paper and as sort of apology to Polly and the Bargain. And it works. Um, he runs a column on the naming of cats. Oh. And afterwards, Polly calls, and su- Polly calls and suggests changing Bootsy's name to Brutus. Brutus. For this was the noblest Roman of them all. Ah. His companion, when she arrives, will be named Cata. <laughs> not as creative, but, you know, at least it's not, it, at least it's not kitty girl. Which I say that, and I say that with love, because I know that there is somebody listening to this who has a cat named Baby Kitty. Yes, well, that... (laughs) Yes, very much so. Anyway. um, Who is a very mean, a lovely snuggling cat, having uh, been with Baby Kitty for as long, as often as I have, but can have a mean streak. It's, in some cases, it's a boy named Sue situation. Yes, (laughs) this is true. Well, with the naming of cats settled, Quill is still fending off Danielle's advances. She keeps calling and saying, you want to come out and play? Again, this is their description of her voice. Um, <laughs> and then she's par- partnered with Brian Blessed, apparently. Yes. for Shnettacablo! <laughs> oh, God. All I can think of is the uh, scene in... Um, with quotation marks. Yes. In, well, not in, in our living room recording this. Yes. The, the scene in um, A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder, because one of the family members who dies is, is doing playing, a scene from Hedda Gabler. No, is playing Hedda, who then walks off stage to shoot herself. And of course, the gun is loaded with real bullets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you just watch the people on stage who watch this happen, and, and you can't quite tell if they're actually sad if it's happened or not. Anyway. Because if I remember, she's a very bad actress. Oh, Yes. This is on par with Danielle. Anyway. um, 
So, beyond offending off Danielle's advances, Quill is waiting for reports from Celia, which she delivers. Um, one of her reports is a tape hidden in a napkin uh, that she that she hands to Quill at the deli counter at Toodles. <laughs> and it's a recording of a conversation she has with George Breeze, a.k.a. Redcap, um, where he <laughs> reveals that he is not responsible for these petty thefts, um, but he also can't read. Oh. And that gives a very interesting perspective on some of his dubious business dealings and will come into play in later books, I believe. Interesting. But for now, uh, it, it's basically taking him off the table um, for being responsible for the theft. So we move on. Um, <laughs> and the next thing on the docket is the day of the wedding for Lynette and Carter Lee. Hmm. It's on a Tuesday, which I originally thought was weird until I realized it was Valentine's Day. <laughs> and you know what? Sure, why not? Let's just lean into all everything. Yeah, it's a Scottish extravaganza. Um, Brody is piping, Quill wears his kilt, Polly breaks an oat cake over Lynette's head. Apparently that's a tradition. Um, and Amanda Goodwinter, of course our resident sourpuss, claims it's bad luck to marry on a Tuesday or marry in green because, of course, Lynette's family tartan is prominently green. Mm. I should point out that be, that she, that on this one, she's not actually wearing green. It's an accessory. It doesn't really count towards the black bad luck. <laughs> but because of this, I immediately went down a huge rabbit hole of wedding superstitions. Um, I was able to confirm that marrying in green is bad. But Tuesday is actually supposed to be marrying for wealth, while hmm. Saturday is actually the unluckiest day to marry. No word on a Sunday, which is when Luke and I got married. Um, marry on a Sunday, you'll have a fun day. There you go. Um, so eventually the happy couple depart for the night. It's in the Bible somewhere. Yeah, sure. Um, eventually the happy couple depart for a night at the Boulder, Inn, Boulder House Inn, hmm. um, which is a uh, an inn on the lake that was literally made from stacked boulders. Oh. It's very interesting. Um, and Polly and Quill join them for, uh, join them for dinner. During a toast to the newlyweds, a server approaches the table and then suddenly runs from the room in tears. We later find out it's the Campbell's daughter, Tracy, but no one is completely sure what caused her outburst. Huh. Next day, Quill returns to the Boulder Inn to collect a story for his upcoming book. Yes, he's really writing one this time. It's... <laughs> sort of. It's a short story collection. Well, um, close enough. So he's not? collecting... He, so he's started collecting all of these tales that we've been hearing throughout the other books. Uh, uh, um, uh. Some of which have something to do with the story and some of which don't. So this particular... Uh, so after uh, he collects the tale from the uh, from the innkeeper, whose name, by the way, is Silas Dingle. <laughs> yeah. Silent Dingle. Silas. I, so I, no, I, I know Silas, just but that's <laughs> Harry Dangle and Bush. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the innkeeper then explains to Quill what happened with Tracy Kimple. Mm. She was upset because she was still still under the impression that Carter Lee was her boyfriend. Oh. So nothing quite like walking up to the table saying, I'm going to be your server, honey. And, yeah, some, CL was yeah, going on. CL is not going well. Um, Quill's mustache starts tingling, of course, and he starts to wonder how many other women Carter Lee has charmed. Um, we later find out that Tracy, after this adventure, tried to overdose on pain meds, but her parents were able to get her to the hospital in time. Mm. Um, Quill warns Ernie about the paper's coverage of the wedding so they can keep Tracy from seeing it, and hopefully they, that means they can prevent a relapse. So right. um, Tracy's in good hands, and... Quill and Ernie aren't the only ones getting suspicious of Carter Lee. Lenny Inchpont also feels like the guy is just too smooth to be true. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Pleasant Street project gets less likely the more we hear about it, because apparently Carter Lee wants a lot of money up front hmm. to cover, as he says, various registration costs um, and consulting fees. But Lenny and Ernie aren't buying it. <laughs> Quill heads back to the village and runs into Weatherby Good, who tells him in confidence some very bad weather news. 
There's a warming trend on the way, which is going to be spelling disaster for Moose County winter tourists. And it's already been a, a very mild winter indeed. It has, Ooh. and they're about to have a thaw. Oof. That's what everything's predicting. Um, and to top it all off, Coco throws up a hairball. Oh. Once again, Quill get, answers the phone where he has to decline Danielle's offer to come over and play. Um, in please, favor. Please, please don't. Don't do that again. <laughs> anyway, he declines her offer in favor of flattened chicken breast at Polly's. Um, Polly, by the, as we've mentioned before, has gone whole hog on the hospital's diet. And the dietician gave her 17 recipes for flattened chicken breast in various forms. So she's been having Quill over once a week to try Ugh. the various recipes. Yeah, it's like the dill chicken we ate for dinner this, yeah, this was, week. I definitely thought about it. Um, so they get a call um, during dinner uh, from Lynette. And she's loving her honeymoon. She's having a great time. Mm-hmm. Although she's having some stomach issues. And she doesn't really care for the chicory coffee, which I totally understand. Um <laughs> Then this weird thing happens where Polly warns her to go easy on the hot chocolates and Quill warns her to go easy on the Sazeracs. I'm like, <laughs> I understand warning someone to go easy on the Sazeracs, but the hot chocolate? Hot chocolate. What? You know what happens when you have one too many hot chocolates, dear? Yeah. You just sleep too soundly. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you're Vaunted Dudley Wicks. Maybe that's what, maybe that's what they're oh, thinking. Oh, that's not true. That's true. So, the next day, Quill has been pondering about this book of renovation work that Carter Lee has apparently been showing to prospective clients, uh, and he enlists Celia to help get a hold of it through Danielle. The weather has turned, as we've mentioned, from glorious snowbanks to potential flooding due to runoff. Um, but, of course, this was a year that Quill actually took up snowshoeing, despite having talked about it in a previous book. Right. Um, so, hmm. But he actually got snowshoes for Christmas and was having a grand old time until everything turned to wet. Um, Just conveniently forgot that one. Who knows? Yes, exactly. Um, he, in, in, you know, in need of a lunch of a, of a lunch company, in need of some lunch company, uh, <laughs> Quill accepts a lunch invite to Tipsies from Joe, weather be good, uh, and both men decide to lay in emergency supplies in case Indian Village is cut off due to flooding before they head to lunch. You know, there are some advantages to going to lunch with the weather guy. Um, <laughs> especially when floods are predicted. No, very true. Yeah. So they have steak sandwiches, and we learn that Joe is actually a native of a place in Lockmaster County called Horseradish. <laughs> which had a problem with lake pirates back in the day that they solved by use of the uh, of, of the title uh, of the title route. Interesting. Anyway. Okay. But we also the town also apparently had a lot of restless spirits, and Joe tells the story of a charlatan who came to town claiming to be able to lay spirits to rest, but who of course ended up skipping town with a fortune instead. And the mustache starts twitching. Hmm. Joe Bunker, by the way, is quickly becoming one of my favorite side characters. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. The two men gossip about the speedy wedding um, of Lynette and Carter Lee. Polly comments that Joe would have been a better match for Lynette, since apparently she was his biggest fan, and Quill agrees. Well, Joe is flattered, which is nice. <laughs> um, Joe, by the way, is also a bridge player and is more inclined to think of Carter Lee as, as an actual fortune hunter who's buttering up Lynette once he found out he was the, she was the sole inheritor of the rather extensive Duncan estate. And it's worked. <laughs> he also tries to warn Quill about another fortune hunter after him, but of course he's warning Quill about Danielle, which we already know. <laughs> She's not subtle. Um, but Carter Lee's work has been very subtle, and he's really starting to wonder if Lynette uh, will marry in haste and repent at leisure. Um, Jeez. As the saying goes. That's a, wow. It's a terrible, oh, jeez. Yeah, not something you want to have anybody say about your wedding. No, no, um, no. 
In other news, Celia managed to get to, managed to come up with a plan and get a hold of Carter Lee's book. Mm. She has it delivered to Quill under the guise of a Valentine with chocolate brownies, of course. Oh, of um, course, Celia. But before he can look through it, Ernie Kemble calls, asking Quill to uh, to brave the, uh, the the possible flooding to meet him as Onushes to discuss something about Tracy. Oh, because he doesn't want to talk about it on the phone. Oh no! The two men managed to survive the wet weather, um, and they are starting to close roads due to flooding at this point. And Ernie reveals quite the tale. The missing doll from the Kemple collection was taken by Tracy and given to Carter Lee as a good luck token. Mm-hmm. She apparently had a falling out with Lenny, who called Carter Lee a phony, which Tracy then repeated to Carter Lee during one of their fancy dates at the Palomino Paddock. So when the doll turns up in Lenny's locker, she realizes that Carter Lee planted the stolen items. Which makes things complicated, because Ernie and Quill agree that Carter Lee is a cad and a user, but his professional persona does not scream petty thief, and by defending Lenny, that's what Tracy is accusing him of. After all of that, Ernie decides to lighten the mood by describing Hedda Gabler as Hedda Cauliflower. Because, of course, in his words, Danielle's playing Hedda a la Adelaide from Guys and Dolls, while Ernie is self-aware enough to know that he's doing Judge Brack a la the villain in The Drunkard. Um, that play needs a sidebar all its own. We'll talk about it in the comments, because wow. that was another rabbit hole I went down. <laughs> So now Quill is wondering, is Carter Lee the petty thief? Despite losing the lambskin cart coats on New Year's Eve, Quill remembers seeing him wearing a very similar coat when he and Lynette stopped by Quill's condo to ask them to be their best ma- ask him to be their best man. So did he buy another? I, Quill managed to look this up and find out that they're very spendy, about $1,500 or so. Wow. So that's not something that somebody other than Quill is going to have the, the ready cash to just drop. Right. Not, like you said, unless you're Quill. Precisely. Um... So it makes him start to wonder, did he recover his coat from the thief, meaning he knows who it is? Hmm. When Quill gets home, the cats are bored. It's too wet for birds and squirrels. And they draw Quill's attention to Clayton's recording. um, Because while Clayton, Celia's grandson, was here, Mm -hmm. um, Quill took him to Gil McMurchie's. Right. And he was taking pictures. And he also had a tape recorder with him. Convenient. Convenient indeed. Um, this tape recording reveals Carter Lee and Danielle discussing the renovations and Danielle planning to steal the silver-handed Dirk, oh. which, it's revealed, she then gave to Lynette as a wedding present. Jeez. Before the, and this is all before, you know, this is all caught on tape, um, before they realize Clayton's in the room. Sure. Will decides to call the police station to see if he can verify if a man or a woman tipped the police off to check the manager's locker. Because Quill is getting some major vibrations that depend on that answer. We never actually hear what the full answer is, but we do find out who the thief is in the time. Jeez. In the meantime, Quill takes Polly to dinner at the Old Stone Mill one last time with Derek Cuddlebrink, of course, as their server in his contractually mandated appearance. Um, The weather is so wet, Derek jokes, that they may get their millstream back if the river fills the tributary again. Oh, boy. Um, And then after dinner, Lynette calls again. Her stomach has not been handling the food well, and Carter Lee's gone out to get her some remedies, and she just can't wait to come home. Mm. Quill and Polly are really starting to get worried about her. This is not sounding like a woman having a good time on her honeymoon. No, not at all. Um... But in the meantime, the name change seems to have worked wonders on Bootsy. As Brutus, he is a well-behaved dream of a cat. <laughs> Take that, Shakespeare. Points to T.S. Elias, and Quill gets points for politely not saying I've told you so. <laughs> so. Which he certainly could have. Yes. So, what's in the name? Well, the naming of cats is a delicate matter, as the line goes. <laughs> um, Despite all these improvements, Coco is still not satisfied and starts fussing at the leather-bound portfolio from Carter Lee, and Quill gets the idea to show it to Amanda Goodwinter, who, of course, also lives in Indian Village, so it's not like he had to venture downtown again. Um, 
assuming he, he he assumes that if nothing else, Amanda Lee, Amanda will tell him that, you know, what's going on. And she does better than that. She realizes that the work shown in the photos wasn't done by Carter Lee. Mm. She you know, points out that none of the photos are identified or dated and is furious because the people who signed on to uh, the Pleasant Street Project paid Carter Lee $20,000 up front with no actual credentials. Um, she verifies this because one of the houses that he's using in his book right. was done by a friend of hers. Huh. Um, she recognizes houses that she's used as references. And again, no dates, no references. And people are handing this guy $20,000? Just sight unseen. And as a parting shot, Amanda wishes Lynette had stayed single. Ooh. This is not going to no, end well. No, this is not going to go well. Because unfortunately, Lynette can't share her wishes at the moment as she's being rushed to the emergency room in New Orleans with severe stomach issues. Oh, God. Quill can't get any information, and he ends up enlisting Dr. Diane's help, which was very smart. Diane, as her primary physician, is able to get through and get updates. At 3.30 a.m., Coco does his death howl. Oh, no. And at 4.30 a.m., Diane calls Quill with terrible news, because Lynette has passed away due to severe gastrointestinal complications aggravated by alcohol abuse. Oof. Quill is shocked and confused, because Lynette wasn't a drinker, and Coco wouldn't howl about anything other than a suspicious death. He calls Danielle, who apparently just got off the phone with Carter Lee, who has checked out and is heading back to Pickaxe as soon as he can. Apparently, Lynette wants him to carry on with the work, and he plans to make Pleasant Street a memorial to her. <laughs> you can, I'm sure you can describe what I was doing with my hands at this point. Very much a, the, I cannot remember, but it's, it's reminding me, it's a widow on her death, it's a, not a widow, but it's a wife on a deathbed, just no carry on. I was embracing Remember my. Me. I was embracing my melodrama. It was very almost a Norma Desmond there gesture in go. a way. <laughs> That's what it was. That's what it was. Um, so let's see here. the The big concern for Quill is that Carly doesn't seem to be aware of Lynette's burial wishes as the last member of a prominent Pickaxe family, and Quill is getting very suspicious and concerned. Hmm. Later, Diane, Dr. Diane calls because she tried to reach the hospital with details of Lynette's living will, which includes a full ceremonial burial. But it was too late. Carter Lee signed the paperwork for cremation. Oh. I mean, everyone keeps saying that death isn't something that you discuss on a honeymoon, but it should be something you discuss before you get married. It should at be. At least in my opinion. No, I agree. This is a conversation we've had, and I think it's... We have. I mean, at it's... least before we got married, I knew you knew I was an organ donor. I knew you were... It's and exactly we we had some of these discussions before, um, and for and for somebody with wishes as significant as Dan as Lynette's, it it it's just I can't believe that it didn't come up. It feels like they've just been ignored. Well, it's been ignored, or everything's too much in a hurry. Yep. Again, that behave in haste, repent at leisure. Yes. Um. So we're we're now in a holding pattern, waiting for Carter Lee to get back to town with Lynette's ashes. Um. Quill works with Polly to come up with a more suitable memorial to Lynette's lifetime of community service to pickaxe, which is good because the official obituary would have horrified Lynette. It prints her age and has a quote from the mayor who she actively hates. Um, Everyone seems to hate this mayor. Yes, yes. The mayor does not go over well. Um, So Quill writes, uh, Quill and Polly write a really lovely tribute to Mm -hmm. her, um, mentioning her family and all of her work and in, in the best way possible. And while that's finished... Coco finally manages to get uh, Quill's attention to, uh, and, and he and he directs it to a note from Bart. Uh, the K fund lawyers have been 
uh, doing background research into Carter Lee to see if they can hire him to do these uh, to do these restoration projects. Mm-hmm. And they have proof that Carter Lee is a fraud with no connections to the restoration industry whatsoever. Are we shocked? No. <laughs> Especially since Coco has been pushing a little known Melville novel off the shelves, which is... The Confidence Man. Ha ha ha. Quill calls the police station immediately after this. He chats with Brody, and Quill comes up with his own plan to try and trap Carter Lee in his own web. And yes, alcohol is involved. <laughs> He's pulling out his old tricks, and he calls Dan- Danielle and invites them over the following afternoon to hear some of the stories he's been collecting. And then he asks their drink of choice, which is margaritas. Mar- margaritas. Margaritas are their drink of choice. In Go for it. In winter? Sure, why not? All right. In the meantime, he decides to listen, as one does, to some opera. Adriana <laughs> Le Couvreur by Francesco Cilea. Now, for those of you not familiar with this little operatic gem, it is about an actress and a spiteful princess who are rivals for a nobleman's love while a prince possesses a powerful poison he's been analyzing for the government. So, I love opera. So this was... Uh... <laughs> It's interesting. Sorry, we've been listening to a pod, another podcast. Give a quick shout out to the good people over at You're Wrong About. But they talk about music and they're doing the PMRC hearings in the 80s. And they're saying, you know, yeah, heavy metal is violent, but have you listened to opera? It's true. Um, especially, Very especially with the opera, this particular opera, which ends when the princess sends the actress a bunch of poisoned violets claiming to be from the nobleman, which kills the actress, but not before the nobleman arrives, confesses his love for her just in time for her to die in his arms. Oh, jeez. All of this drama, along with Coco's reaction, suggests to Quill that Lynette was poisoned. Probably by her husband. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Apparently, the local wags have a saying, which is, if you want to murder your spouse, do it down below. <laughs> Quill's starting to think that Carter Lee and Danielle may have taken that idea to heart, and he further prepares his trap for them. He calls Joe over to read a story that he's written for his collection, because he doesn't want them to recognize his voice. Mm-hmm. And Joe also plans to hide in the bedroom on the balcony in case of trouble. One small problem arrives... Quill doesn't actually have margarita ingredients, and every liquor store is closer to flooding. And as you mentioned, it's the middle of winter. Nobody so has no, margarita. like, there's not going to be tequila and Cointreau yeah, kind of just easily to grab. Exactly. Fortunately, after some phone calls around the village, it turns out that the Cavendish sisters are margarita fiends. And after he rescued their of cat, course. they are thrilled that they provide him with everything he needs. You gotta love that little twist there. <laughs> I'm thinking of just the line from Archer now, which is just terrible. It's, oh, sour mix and a margarita? What is this, Auschwitz? <laughs> All right, so it's the following day, and Danielle and Carter Lee arrive, and there are two margaritas in each. Um, and Quill offers, Yeah. <laughs> and Quill offers to play his story. It's about a community plagued by restless spirits of dead miners. Oh, no. Until the arrival of a man and his pretty sister who claim they possess the ability to rid the town of spirits with just a pickaxe, a miner's helmet, and a few bags of sand. And plenty of money, of course. They do provide some yep. relief from the spirits, and the woman and a, a woman from the richest family in town falls in love with a mysterious man who asks her to marry him. She's not the prettiest or youngest girl in town, but she is, as I mentioned, by far the richest. They marry quickly and plan to travel after a brief honeymoon, <laughs> bringing relief to other spirit-tortured towns. It is at this point that Carterly is starting to get worried. Daniel, of course, has no clue what's going on. <laughs> She's enjoying her margarita haze. Back to the story. One night, after eating a stew prepared by her sister-in-law, the woman passes away suddenly, and the man and his sister disappear with her dowry, as well as stolen items from the various houses they <laughs> quote-unquote helped. And it is revealed in the postmortem that the woman died. Of arsenic poisoning. Arsenic? Dun, dun, dun. Oh, dear. 
So at this point, Carter Lee is realizing he might be caught and Danielle has no clue something's wrong. Um, yells at her to get in the car and then Carter Lee tries to attack Quill with one of the displayed dirks. But Coco drops from the balcony onto his head <laughs> and despite the cat scratches across his face, Carter Lee manages to escape and get to the car. Oh no. Um, Quill and Joe jump in Joe's van, which has a car phone apparently. So Quill calls in the police, calls the police um, and let them and know that they are chase. in pursuit. In pursuit. Um, the police plan to wait for the car across the bridge a couple miles away, but the bridge is almost completely underwater due to the flooding. Oh, no. Carter Lee and Danielle attempt to cross it anyway, and their oh. car is swept off the bridge by the force of the water catching in a tree further downstream. And that's the end of them, I'm guessing. That, well, sort of. Um, <laughs> with that, um, the snow officially melts in Moose County on February 15th, an all-time record. Wow. Yeah. That was a fast melt. Um at one point, weather be good. Weather be good. Weather be good. I was. Th- I thought you were going to say weather be goo. <laughs> well, well, okay. Back, back to back this up. At one point, Joe Bunker in his weather be personality <laughs> describes the uh, the melt as because there's all of the snow, but then there's warm rain, and it's like pouring hot tea on ice cubes. Mm. Um. So we've had the snow melt. Carter Lee is under arrest. Danielle turned out to be the petty thief. Uh-huh. And she has agreed to turn state's evidence in exchange for her own immunity, which is probably a good thing because it's never confirmed, but it's very likely she had Carter Lee hire someone to kill Willard down below. Mm. Um, Quill and Polly have another flattened chicken breast supper. And when Polly asks Quill if he ever suspected Carter Lee, Quill's only admission is that it was the guarantee of Nash of the National Registry that had him suspicious, especially after talking with Mitch and Christie about the hoops they had to jump through for their house. Um, they have managed to rec- to recover Gil McMurchie's Dirk and uh, get it and plan to get it returned Good. to him, and they regret Lynette's too soon passing. Mm. For an epilogue, <laughs> um, Joe arrives. Blooming peace this morning with, with the it rings. <laughs> the sun for sorrow will not show its head, but it will bring horseradish. Um, <laughs> Because Joe, Joe Bunker shows up with a gas mask oh, and a ceramic crock of horseradish from horseradish. Um, and he sits down with Quill and they recap. Um, Fran has taken over the lead and had a gabbler and everyone is relieved. Uh, Lenny is free. Lois is handing out free apple pie. Um, Quill convinces Brody that Carter Lee is likely responsible for Willard's death by hiring a hitman, thanks to hints from Coco, as I mentioned before, which is then added to his list of crimes, all of which he is found guilty of, leading to a lifetime prison sentence. Mm. And scene. The curtain falls, and the gunshot <laughs> kills the dice quits. <laughs> <laughs> Why are all the dice quits dying? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Oh my goodness! This, this there book is, is a lot. In there this is book. so much, but I love the ups and downs of this book. It is one of the. It, it is this and the cat who said cheese are the two that I tend to read back to back. I can see why. It's they're both. They're, there's a lot going on in there, but there is a lot, like you said, ups and downs. There's, it's a mm-hmm. wild ride from yeah. start to finish. Oh, absolutely. Um, so now some of my favorite little side notes. Um, during New Year's Eve. Quill and Amanda Goodwin are complaining about the cheery family Christmas letters that everyone receives. <laughs> and they plan that the following year they're going to make a phony letter full of bad news and send it to every name in the pickaxe phone book. And they intend to sign the letter, Ronald Frobnitz and family. <laughs> oh, the Christmas letters. Oh, the Ronald Frobnitz coming back. Um, <laughs> other thing. So we have heard about XYZ shoddy construction habits, uh-huh. um, especially after the cat who came to breakfast. 
It's in full view in Quill's condo in Indian Village. There is wind whistling through the windows, floors that bounce, walls with only minimal soundproofing, bounce. which we discover because Weather Be Good has a Sousa box, <laughs> a music box <laughs> that plays 50 Sousa marches that his cat likes to turn on and off, <laughs> treating Quill to short Sousa marches whenever Weatherby leaves the room. <laughs> on the plus side, it is this having a cat that raises Willoughby in Quill's estimation, so he actually goes and gets to know him as Joe Bunker. Um... And later, in one of the tall tales that Quill collects, we learn that Indian Village was built on the site of the Dank Hollow, a mm. mysterious local spot where the dead are said to gather after dark. Ooh. Mind flip. <laughs> Thank you, Bushy. Um, So, as I mentioned, Polly's still on the hospital diet. Quill comes to dinner, and it's always flattened chicken breast, which he started to refer to as FCB, Ugh. with various dressings. Um, Quill claims that he thaws a burger for himself when he gets home. <laughs> But in this book, 19 books in, um, we met Polly, I think, about nine books ago, give or take. That sounds about right. Um, and we finally, finally learned her husband's name. It was William Wallace Duncan, <sighs> which if you didn't know Lynette was big on Scottish, she comes well, by Matt, it honestly. Yeah, pretty much William Wallace Duncan. <laughs> yes. But finally, speaking of mind flips... It's revealed, you know, Weather Be Good has been punctuating all of his weather uh, forecasts since he joined WPKX with classical quotations. And it's finally revealed where he gets them all. It's not Weather Be as a big bookworm. Polly is a devoted listener and has been sending this, them in and, ah. listen, and just totally trolling Quill. <laughs> totally oh. trolling Quill this entire time. <laughs> I love it. Without him, without even knowing for so long. Oh. Exactly. Um, as we mentioned, we've met Bart, um, a GL and Barter, who is the new attorney. He's on Quill's wavelength. Um, there's a talk about his office decorations being modern furnishing, and he serves coffee and mugs as opposed to heavy antiques and vintage teacups, <laughs> as Osmond Hasselrich prefers. And we all know how Quill feels about vintage teacups. Finger <laughs> trap handles. handles. Yep. We all know. Um, so there's one thing that gets mentioned that is a, a running theme in this book that really doesn't have anything to do with the plot necessarily, except for the melting snow, is Hixie's latest brainchild, which mm -hmm. is the Mooseville Ice Festival. <laughs> she was planning ice fishing competitions, dog sleds races, queens in faux polar bear skins, and it all comes to nothing because the ice melted it's so too early. early. Yep. Shame. So there's running updates on the ice festival where it's like, everything's great. It's less great. Oh, oh. We gotta cancel. Aww. Excuse me. <laughs> Just, we'll we'll put in a yow edit. For yes, that there you one. go. Get a yow in there. <laughs> um, speaking of the flooding, the mill wheel at the old stone mill doesn't survive the flood. Oh no! Um, there is a rush of water uh, down the tributary, which breaks it loose and destroys it. So they're gonna have to build a new one. So we mentioned that Ernie describes Lenny as a prankster. Ernie mm -hmm. Kemple. Um, here is one of Lenny's pranks, which I think is kind of brilliant. Knowing that the mayor, again, our favorite mayor, was having an affair with a woman who worked at the post office, Lenny painted yellow footprints in washable paint from the mayor's office to the post office. And it didn't rain for a week, so the whole town saw it. Again, this is not the action of a guy who's going to become a petty thief. So obviously Lenny was going it's to be... It's not, yeah. You're not going to do that to draw too much attention to yourself, so... Yes. Um, we mentioned that Quill has finally decided to write a book. 
It's going to be called Short and Tall Tales, oh, featuring stories from Moose County's <laughs> past. Uh, we get several stories in this book. We get um, a story of the Dimsdale Jinx, in which a mine owner poisons her family's pasties so she can split the insurance money with a local doctor, with, of course, whom she is having an affair. <laughs> That's from Homer Tibbet. We get the story, once again, of Hilda the Clipper from Burr and Gary Pratt. This is about a woman who menaces an entire town for years with her hedge clippers until she was committed to a sanatorium. <laughs> we then, and finally, we get Silas Dingwall, who adds the story of the Dank Hollow. And Silas Dingwall, by the way, was the was the innkeeper at the Boulder House Inn. Hmm. Um, and he's the one who reveals that the story of the Dank Hollow, as I mentioned, where the dead tend to gather after dark, uh-huh. that's the site of the Indian Village condos. <laughs> Now, these stories are also in the, uh, you say that uh, LBJ collects these in a They are collected in an actual book. Um, She writes all of these stories down, and so you can get a hold of Short and Tall Tales. It's her second collection of short stories. Um, The the first one being The Cat Who Had 14 Tales. (laughs) So, fun things. We're not going to discuss them because they're a bunch of legends and, well, fun. Unless they reply to the plot, there's really no point. Mm, Fair enough. Um, Quill finally wears his kilts, as we mentioned, for Burns Night. Mm-hmm. And he declines to answer Polly when she asks what he's wearing under it. <laughs> There's the, 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 the love, the setup of this is great. Um, do I know you well enough to ask what you're wearing under there? You do, you do, and I'm not telling you. <laughs> um, there is also a bit of an oops in this one, which, mm-hmm. you know, 40 years on, it's kind of to be expected. Um, Carter Lee thanks Quill for being his best man, and Quill says it's the third time he's done it, and the only time he didn't drop the ring, but that is incorrect. This is the fourth time we know that Quill has served as best man, and the second time he hasn't dropped the ring. Unfortunately, it's the only time that the wedding has, it's, it is, there has only been one time that the wedding hasn't ended in total disaster. So, the weddings that Quill has served as best man at are Arch's first wedding, mm-hmm. which ended in divorce, Iris Cobb's wedding, which... The rings was dropped on both both, both of those, and Iris's Cobb's wedding ended in giant fire and dead husband. Yes. Um, we have Arch's second wedding to Mildred, which is still going strong, and then we have Lynette and Carter Lee, both of which the ring ring wasn't dropped, hmm. but um, Arch and Mildred are still the only ones holding strong. Okay, I mentioned a rabbit hole that we needed to go down briefly, um, which is when Ernie Kemble describes his performance of Judge Brack like the villain in The Drunkard. The Drunkard was a temperance play that premiered in 1844 and was revived in 1933 in Los Angeles, where it ran for 36 years. <laughs> Jeez. The villain is Cribs, an unscrupulous lawyer trying to steal a cottage from a widowed mother and her daughter. Forged signatures, lots of fake drunkenness before the lawyer is arrested, and everyone else lives happily ever after. And we assume <laughs> so, really, because it is a temperance play. Well, of course. That's a really, really short version of what it is. The Wikipedia article is very long, and it looks like something that would be a lot of fun, but only if you can do it as full-on melodrama. Well, if it's a temperance play, it's written to be a very, very taken very seriously. Exactly. And I think if you do it airplane style for a parody, that could be a lot of fun. It could. It could. We, we've mentioned all of the various uh, signs of the times between uh, the car phones, the dot matrix printer, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. Um, cashing, cashing a check, check at the yep. bank. Yeah. Mentioned all of those. And so finally, cats will be cats. Bootsy and Quill still don't like each other, but the change <laughs> in the name from Bootsy to Brutus marks a very distinctive change in their relationship. Quill's article about the naming of cats swamps the mailroom of something with postcards filled with aptly named cats. <laughs> and of all of them, the one that remains my favorite is a shrimp addict named Stir Fry. <laughs> 
These are great. And the and and appropriately named cats will now pop up for the rest of the series. As opposed to just an ironically named yes, or exactly. silly name. But no, appropriately named, wonderful. There you go. Now, two in a row, you mentioned that you often read this one and also the cat who said cheese back to back. Your paw rating is the same for both, isn't it? It is. I do give this book four paws up. It is a pickaxe version of the classic con. It's well executed. It's fun with lots of ups and downs. And all of the baddies get brought to justice. In my search for reviews of this book, I found one that referred to it as a benign waste of time. Who said that? And I would like to take issue with that. It's one of the review sites. Um, and it, that, te- that frankly, just based on the site, was taking itself far too seriously. <laughs> We aren't reading these books for deep thoughts or life-changing sentiments. No. Although I, I do, as we've mentioned, trace plenty of major changes in my life back to these books. Um, expansion of my of my food palette, how to cook a turkey, um, learning to keep a shovel in my car, mm-hmm. things like that. They aren't a waste of time. Benign or otherwise, they aren't a waste of time. No. They're a chance to visit friends and escape to the world that makes them worth so much more than all the weighty tomes that are trying to change the reader's, the reader's life. Not everything needs to be the goldfinch or life of pie. It's thing, as John Oliver would say of the Penguins, things are allowed to be nice. Things are allowed to be That's nice. That's what these books are. Like you said, it's old friends, it's comfort, you curl up and you just enjoy and escape for a bit. Exactly, which is why it's been so much fun to do this. Yes. Um, and yeah, it's, and, and my other question is, as a book reviewer, we're going to call something a waste of time. Why did you bother to read it? I mean, again, I I would have to go looking for this, and I'll post it. Of course, it's that person's job. To I'll do post so, it on the blog. Still. But this this particular website doesn't actually seem to have a lot of other paperbacks. Hmm. It seems to be picking on this one in particular. Um, and if you're not usually reviewing these more lighthearted, this more lighthearted fare, why? If you if all you want to do is review the heavy duty stuff. Don't review the lighthearted stuff. Right. This is this is not going to be. You mentioned the goldfinch, which I have issues with, but anyway. Um, but like, this is not going to be life of pie. Myself, this is not going to be whatever. It's not going to be a very. Life. It's like you. It's not going to be a heavy weighty like this is a book that's going to change your life. Yeah, well, yeah. it's a book that you're going to forget about life maybe for a little bit and have fun. And quite frankly, we need a little bit of that these days. Nope, I agree completely. It's yeah. You can. Things are allowed to be nice. <laughs> With that. With that. Thank you for listening to The Cat Who Did a Podcast. Join us next time for The Cat Who Sang for the Birds. <laughs> I'm Susan Romsdorf Terry. And I'm Luke Romsdorf Terry. Until, until next time. Happy sleuthing. And stay nosy, my friends. <laughs>